verses 1 through 18. Turn to Genesis 20. You're looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18. From, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he journeyed in Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not, had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it is I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his, all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to, have been, ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see and what that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, although not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do, do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we certainly have another mess of a family on our hands in this passage this morning. Even if they are not quite as bad as Lot and his wife and daughters, they are truly sinners with their sin on display nonetheless. And so are we. 
That's why we need a passage like this, so that you might instruct us in the way we should go as we seek to turn from sin and follow after you more and more. Please lead us in the way of righteousness for your name's sake. For it is in Jesus' name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. So here we have, with friends like these, again. And it's not just again in the fact that we followed on the heels of Lot's family, but again in Abraham's family. Abraham. When you look up against Lot, he looks really good. But when you dive in a little more, not so much all the time. You know, this situation is hopeless due to the nature of mankind. We think, because we have moved away from God, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned each one to his own way. We think that God is out of the picture. That's how we're born naturally. That we were abandoned when it was us who abandoned him. And this is why we must always be suspect of heavy concentrations of power. Because it's one thing for each of us individually to think like that, but when we get together and pool our supposed wisdom, which is really foolishness together, bad things happen. You look at the Tower of Babel in that verse um, 11, 6, God tells us straight up, this is what happens when sinners get together and start to do things. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. That's not a good thing. It's not one of those things where in Christ all things are possible. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the depths of their depravity, we haven't even seen the half of it yet. It'll just get worse and worse and worse. And it was the Lord's grace to judge at Babel. Yes, it was painful, so it was a true judgment. But it was grace because he broke up that big plan of all these sinners getting together, trying to exert their power over the whole world and go against his rule. And the funny thing is, is we would all still be stuck in this netherworld because we can't get out of it ourselves. But there's a principal assumption of ministry that I learned a while back, it actually comes from the work of Bebo and, and uh, others. This principle of pastoral ministry is that God's at work. It's what gets you up in the morning. Because sometimes when I look at me, when I look at y'all, just kidding, when I look at me more, is God really at work? Yes, he is. This passage gives us that hope because it's, it's really back to the same message we went through last week in one sense, that the Lord's great covenant reclamation will be unimpeded by sin, including ours. And that big question again, fill in the blank, 
We had Lot last week. We have Abraham this week. Put your name in there. Why does the Lord put up with Abraham? That's what this passage deals with. Because there is no stopping his reclamation determination. Not even Abraham's stubborn worrying, his shameful witness, nor his successful ways. And I have to correct because I put it in wrong in the bulletin. Um, it's shameful witnesses 8 through 13. And the successful ways is verses 14 through 18. But first, why does the Lord put up with Abraham? Because there's no stopping his reclamation determination, not even Abraham's stubborn worrying. So if God's at work, can you persevere in your life, in your ministry? What we see with Abraham first here is something good. He's actually claiming the promise of God when he went into the promised land by walking through the land. And he's trying to walk all over the place as much as he can because that is a way of claiming that territory that God said once he gets through all those cursed people, the Canaanites, that the people of God would have that land. The initial journey symbolized his true ownership, at least his stewardship, the ownership that God gave him. If you look on your scripture sheets there, Genesis 12, just part of verse 6 and verse 9, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, the, to the Oak of Moreh. That's about halfway into the promised land from where he was coming from uh, in, in the Chaldean land. And Abraham journeyed on. This is later, still going toward the Negev, which is the very southern part. So he entered at the northern part, went to the midpoint, and God got him all the way down to the very southern part of the promised land. He is claiming all that. And even it says, and Abram journeyed on, still going. He's getting in more steps, you know, not the 10,000 steps that Apple or whatever your exercise app, Fitbit or whatever it is, tries to get you to get every day. No, these are steps in which he is settling in the land. In the midst of these peoples, we see in uh, the end of verse 1, and he lived between Kadesh and Shurs and sojourned. So he's living there, but he's going around. Sojourn just means, like, the root word is journey. He's moving around in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, of Sarah, his wife. We'll get to that in a minute. See, when, God, when, when Abraham went into the promised land at first, God had visited him. It's not on your sheet there, but when he came in verse 6 to Shechem, it says there at the very end of verse 6, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, that's a scary thing. Because Abraham just got his one little family and his household. That's it. And these people have been living there. Okay? Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So Abraham built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God was saying, look, I am in your midst. Wherever you go, I go. If you're with me, you've got a majority no matter where you go. And so that was Abraham's confidence, such that, as it says here, he settled between Kadesh and Shur, between two Canaanite cursed people cities. Here, um, back in chapter 12, he settled between Bethel and Ai. In uh, chapter 12, verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. All these were cursed cities. Cursed. 
because the people that lived in them were cursed. Which is why he speaks to Sarah in the first place, right? He spoke to his wife or spoke of his wife. So he claims a promise and then he immediately turns around and disclaims the promise, which is the insanity of self-trust. The trust in your own interpretations only. Now that doesn't mean you have to always be second-guessing yourself, but you need to be aware that many of your conclusions may not be correct. And you need to open your heart and mind to the Word of God. And don't let the pastor meddle. Let the Holy Spirit meddle. Because He is meddling. He is going to meddle. That is His prerogative. In fact, in a sense, His role is like a friendly prosecuting attorney. Pointing out the ways that you and I do not line up the way we should. It's insane to trust yourself alone. And that's what this whole society is doing with all this identity politics and gender fluidity and all of these things. We're defining for ourselves, trusting ourselves. It's insane and will lead to nothing but more insanity. And what we see with Abraham in this incident is here we go again, right? When he went down into Egypt, tell him you're my sister. I'm afraid they're going to kill me to get you. He's setting a bad precedent. Look at what Paul tells us in Romans 6. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning you really, you might have had some conscious pangs, conscience pangs, that, that rattled in your head because God has written his law in our hearts, he said in Romans 2. But you didn't really understand the true righteousness and what it all really means because you were separated from the word of God. Look at what he says, verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. That's why trusting yourself is insane. That's why our whole society right now it's insane for trying to do this from a point where I get to construct everything about my life. I get to claim certain things. I get to claim certain, certain things about other people, whole swaths of people. I get to just claim it, and it's true. No, it's not. What God says is true. Let every man be a liar. Every one of us, because we are. All of us. In the flesh. Abraham's concern is based on something real. It's twisted, but it's based on something real. If he is killed and God has promised Isaac, how is Isaac going to be born? But God is way more committed to you than you are to yourself. And what we see here in the midst of Abraham's sin is the surprise of God's watchfulness, his vigilance over Abraham in verses 3 through 7. And it was all because of Sarah. Look, God is more honoring to Sarah than Abraham is. Because Christ is more honoring to his bride than Abraham the covenant head at this time. He leaves much to be desired still, as any of us would. Christ is way more compassionate, looking out for, vigilant for his bride 
than Abraham. Look at Ephesians 5.25. As husbands are to pattern themselves after Christ, what is Christ like? Christ, as Christ, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What is Abraham doing? He's saying, kind of put yourself on the line for me. Christ never does that. Look, there's no confusion that Isaac is going to be the seed, the promised seed. We see it, again, just a reminder, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring or between her, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's threat to Satan, but his promise to us. They were looking for one who was to come. And it looked like Abraham might be the guy. We can see clearly he's not. Will Isaac be the guy? Of course, we know the answer. There's only one, right? He protected Abraham and Sarah because of Sarah, but also because of this good news of the gospel that he is proclaiming right here in Genesis 3.15. That Christ would come one day as the seed of the woman and crush the head of the serpent and begin the process of reversing all the mess of the fall and bring us as his people that he pulls out of this chaos of the world to bring us in line more and more with how he designed us in the first place. Salvation is only in the seed of the woman. And we're all born seed of the serpent, by the way. Except for one. He wasn't born that way. Jesus. So that means we talk about these cursed people and these cursed land like Canaan and these cities. But guess what? We're all cursed. Every last one of us. This is the gospel. When we were cursed and could not get out of it, look at what it says in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because we are, the law shows us that we are not righteous at all. Not any one of us. He, he redeemed us. That means he bought us back from our slavery of being under law and being cursed, being slaves to sin, being slaves to Satan. Why, how? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He was taken on himself on the wood of the cross. On himself, he was absorbing the wrath of God, the just anger of God against every single one of us for our sin. So when we talk about the craziness of the society, this is not meaning that we're set apart on our own because we're so good. No. We're only set apart because he's so good to do it. He's the one that sets us apart. And we're not even all there yet. What this is telling us is that God is the author of salvation. Down to the last little minute detail. Look at the end of verse 6. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. This is telling us what Christ is doing for his bride, the church. It's a little picture. Because Christ says, all these scriptures are pointing to me. God has to step in and say, because guess what? Abraham's worthy of this curse. He's still showing that he is. Even though he's God's man. How accommodating is God for us? Not to us. He doesn't accommodate to us. 
Meaning, hey, it's okay. You just keep doing. Go ahead and do that sin thing. It's all right. It's not what it, but he's accommodating for us. And the difference is, is he deals with our sin because of his mercy. But that mercy assumes justice. He will not let this go. There will be no disorder of his creation that he will let stand. And so he threw in the ultimate disorder for him, which is to put his own son to death while he was bearing our sins, that God reckoned our sins to him so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. Not on our own righteous account, but freely given to us in Christ Jesus. His righteousness for ours. So the Lord perseveres for and with Abraham and with us. Can you persevere for him? He's guaranteed your spot. He's showing it right here. You just have to step up into it. That's the Lord's great covenant reclamation. He's bound himself to this. It won't be impeded by your sin. That's why he puts up with Abraham and us. Because there's no stopping his great reclamation determination. Not even Abraham's stubborn worrying. He's always worrying, you know. Hey, tell him you're my sister. He's stuck on this one. He can't get off the dime on it. And God is still walking with him. He's persevering. Can you persevere? He's at work. He's at work. There's no stopping his great reclamation determination. Not even... Abraham's shameful witness, though. God's at work. Can you repent? And here you have an unbeliever calling out a believer for the believer's sin. In verse 8. These are things that ought not to be done, Abraham. Ought not to be done. You see, we have the law, Romans 2 Verses 1 and following, we're not going to go deep into that, but you can look at that. Paul says the law is written on the heart of every man. That's why, you know, we have, yeah, let conscience be your guide. Yeah, well, Jiminy Cricket, I'm sorry. Your conscience is really messed up. Because you got stuff clanging around in there. You got guilt clanging around in there. A lot of it's deserved. But none of us have a great interpretation of really what's going on. So don't let conscience be your guide. Let God's word be your guide. Bring yourself to the word of God. Look, they had some special revelation back then. It was not written in a book. It was written on tablets. It was oral tradition. They were not that far away from the Noahic generation. And therefore, they weren't that far away from the story of Adam at this point, the real history of Adam. So fear grips Abimelech and his servants. And there are consequences on creation of this sin. In verse 9, yeah, you have the irony of an unbeliever calling out a believer's sin. And the unbeliever recognizes, I have sinned against you, he says. Which means he's closer to special revelation. We see that in Romans 1, 18 through 20. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's why you cannot trust every bit of your interpretations of anything. You need to be growing in conformity to God's word to see the truth clearly more and more. And that doesn't mean that people can't get truth out there. Because why? Because it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. But this is not saving knowledge, right? This is condemning knowledge. For it is his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And this man, Abimelech, this ruler, says, you have brought this sin upon me and upon my kingdom. And that's true. Because God created and is over all, so therefore the sin that we do as his crowning of creation affects all. The day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. The earth was made for us. Adam was made from the earth, which was made for him. And he sinned against God, therefore everything fell, including us. He did the thing that should not be. It should not be, verses 10 through 13, on the part of the Christian it should not be. First, he had bad assumptions about the area that, and the people he was with, verses 10 and 11. Such that, you know, I, said, I came to this place, I said, you know, say you're my, my sister because there's no fear of God in this place at all. How did he know that? Should have been just trusting the Lord. Abimelech calls him out there. What specifics? Did you see anything? You don't even know me. Did you see anything? What did you see that told you that? Actually, he responds pretty well, even as an unbeliever, when the Lord stops him, right? It's like, oh, I'm, well, I'll, I'll change. I'll repent. And so he comes up with this, Abram comes up with this plausible deniability story. You know what plausible deniability is? Politicians and lawyers use it a lot. You have no proof, do you? No proof that this went on. No, but it's actually just deception. That's all it is. I set up the condition so it looks like, it looks like, oh, it's just one thing. No, really, we were aiming at this all along. That's how political negotiations go on. I'm not really lying, verse 12, right? She is my sister, just not my mother's daughter. And then he says, at every place, this is the kindness you must do for me. It's so entrenched in him. This stubborn worrying. He couldn't yet repent. And what fruit did he gain for it? Couldn't you see the Lord's kindness? Not your kindness, or the kindness you asked of your wife, that he stepped in on your behalf here, can't you step up into his call to follow him in obedience, repenting of your sin? Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to what? To lead you to repentance, not his wrath, his kindness. Now, you won't understand his kindness until you understand his wrath and his anger. But how he himself overcomes that by pouring out his wrath on his son. That's his kindness. So there's no stopping this great reclamation determination. Not even our sin. He puts up with us and Abraham. Not even Abraham's stubborn worrying, his shameful witness, nor his successful ways. Even when Abraham's successful, which he could grow in pride in. When you're successful, can you still trust? I'm telling you, you're more tempted not to trust when you're successful than when you're not. You know, he got blessed in spite of sin. It's like deja vu all over again. Genesis 12, 16, and for Sarah's sake, it says her in the text, but for Sarah's sake, God, he meaning God, oh, I'm sorry, he meaning Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. 
Aram does this great sin, and God still gives him stuff. Can you say that the Lord is not kind? And then you have Abimelech stinging addressed directly to Sarah, which I think was in the hearing of Abraham. Yeah. Um, tell your brother, right? Tell your brother. But here's what Abraham's there for, why you and I exist in this world. We are cursed people who have been blessed. Abraham is meant to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That was the promise of Genesis 12, 3, when God first called him. I'm blessing you so that you'd be a blessing to all the families of the earth. All that got broken up at Babel, I'm going to call the people from all of those. God keeps Abraham in the role of the prophet priest, just like Jesus with Peter when he restores him after Peter denies him three times. So we have the healing of the curse, and then we have the free offer of the gospel in verse 18, because, because of Sarah, because of the bride of the covenant head, God closed the wombs of Abimelech's uh, household, the women in his household, and God heals them, the cursed people. That should give us all hope, because look, we're all cursed, Genesis 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law. In other words, all who try to be self-righteous. Hey, God, I did good, didn't I? You're under a curse if you do that. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you want to rely on yourself, keep that standard. You've already broken it. You've broken it this morning. You broke it yesterday. You broke it every day of this week and every day of your life. So you're already, you're already done. Sort of can stick a fork in it. It's cooked. There's no hope for anyone. No hope at all. Because we're stuck under this curse. That is unless what? Well, what is it that characterizes Jesus' life and ministry? In Luke 1.37, as the angel Gabriel said to Mary about the birth of Jesus and how he would turn everything around, he is the seed of the woman for nothing will be impossible with God. In conclusion, we look at the world's logic and I think of that scene. It's in the book. It's not portrayed as well in the movie, but in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, where Professor Kirk asks in a frustrating manner, what are they teaching in the schools these days? What are they teaching? These four kids in World War II go to live in the English countryside because they were bombing London where they lived to be safe. Four kids, Lucy, Edmund, Susan, and Peter Pevensey. <coughs> Lucy goes into the wardrobe. She starts telling these stories, and they don't believe her because no time passes when she comes back. And Edmund goes in too, but he kind of lies about it, says they were just playing. So Susan, the two oldest kids, Susan and Peter, Go to the professor and they say, and the professor asks them after with, when they bring their concerns about Lucy, says, how do you know that your sister's story is not true? Oh, but, Susan began, but then stopped. Anyone could see from the old man's face that he was perfectly serious. And he pulled 
Susan, uh, then Susan pulled herself together and said, but Edmund said they were only pretending. And that is a point, said the professor, which certainly deserves consideration, very careful consideration. For instance, if you will excuse me for asking the question, does your experience lead you to regard your brother or your sister as the more reliable? I mean, which is the more truthful? That's just the funny thing about it, sir, said Peter. Up till now, I've said Lucy every time. And what do you think, my dear? Turning to Susan. Well, Su Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter. But this couldn't be true, all this about the wood and the fawn. That is more than I know, said the professor. And a charge of lying against someone whom you've always found truthful is a very serious thing. A very serious thing indeed. We were afraid it might even be worse than lying. We thought there might be something wrong with Lucy, Susan said. Madness, you mean? Professor said coolly. Oh, you can, you can make your minds easy about that one. One only has to talk to her and look at her to see that she is not mad. But then, said Susan and stopped, she had never dreamed a grown-up would talk like the professor and didn't know what to think. Logic, said the professor to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious she is not mad. For the moment, then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Did you let go of your stubborn worrying and open your mind to God's loving control? It's logical. Jesus says, how can you add any more to your life by worrying? Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. And haven't you seen his great kindness and never, never, never giving up on you? Instead, going to the length of laying down his son's life instead of yours, as Jesus says in John 15, greater love is no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. Doesn't his kindness lead you to repentance? And if you trust and repent and fight to keep finding him, because he's already found you, you will persevere. Because you'll find he's persevering with you. He's invested way too much not to. The true seed of the woman died so you wouldn't have to. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you're way, make, way more committed to us than we are to you. You persevered with Abraham and you do the same with us. The same Lord Jesus that gave himself up for Abraham gave himself up for us by becoming a curse for the cursed people, both him and all those who come to you under his blessing and the coming of Jesus who came through Abraham. We thank you that we have... We have no hope apart from his blood that was shed for us and that you sent him to do just that and he did just that for us. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.